brutal fight. It is not something that Dr. Seuss made up, although it does sound like something Dr. Seuss would make up. Uh, it's an actual thing, and I want to show you a brutal fight. Two food. That's what I was supposed to say at the very end there. <laughs> a brutal fight, he says, is a quintessential example of how Filipinos value sharing, especially when it comes to food. Uh, now, this uh, particular uh, uh, food thing is something that uh, I've not experienced myself. I've never actually been to a Boodle fight. Uh, I just learned about it just this past week, and my wife is Filipino. She's never even been to a Boodle fight, but now we're like, we've got to do the Boodle fight. Now, if you grew up in Southeast Asia, whether it was the Philippines or any place else, uh, you would know that the correct way to introduce yourself to someone or to kind of like uh, see how they're doing, you don't go up to them like we would say, and you know, like for us, it's like, Hello, how are you, right? Like that's kind of like a common greeting that we would use. Uh, in Southeast Asia, the correct greeting, the common greeting, the traditional greeting is, have you eaten yet? That's literally, the, because the, the idea of sharing and hospitality is so integral to the culture that that's actually the common greeting. Have you eaten yet? Now, if you've ever come over to uh, my house for dinner, uh, you know that my wife has a really difficult time uh, figuring out how much food to prepare, all right? Uh, we joke that if five people are coming over for dinner, we're going to have enough for 20, all right? But it's not Brenda's fault. It's actually her mother's fault. You see, uh, Lola Prima never was able to make just enough. In fact, if you ever went over to Brenda's family's house, there was going to be enough food for leftovers, so much food that there was more than enough and even then, there needed to be just a little bit more. Uh, that's just one of the hallmarks of Filipino hospitality. They want to feed you. I think I shared the story the very first time that I ever met Brenda's mom. Uh, we showed up after traveling like seven or eight hours from uh, college uh, out to Philadelphia. It was like 11 o'clock at night, maybe even like closer to 11.30. And we had people traveling with us. And all they wanted to do was drop Brenda and I off and get home, okay? Well, they go to drop us off, and she insists that everybody goes inside because she has an entire meal prepared for us at 11.30 at night. And people were walking away with uh, tinfoil bags wrapped up with, like, leftovers to go. Like, that's just how it was. Now, that hallmark of hospitality, of sharing of food, is not simply something uh, that is Filipino only. Uh, the, the hospitality... Uh, as part of the hallmark of a culture is all throughout Southeast Asia and, and all over in the Middle East. Uh, I can remember when uh, I first went to Turkey. Uh, I say first, I've only been once, but the one time that I went to Turkey, uh, any hotel you go to, one of the ways that they uh, want to show off is by the food that they prepare. Uh, they want every single person to enjoy a feast because uh, the idea of sharing a food and Hospitality is a hallmark to the culture. Um, Baker Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. Our good folks at Baker here in GR uh, published this. Listen, listen to this. The hospitable act of the communal meal possesses great symbolic significance. In the ancient world, to share food with someone was to share life. Such a gesture of intimacy created a bond of fellowship. There's something about the communal meal, sharing food together, that actually induces hospitality, defines in many ways 
hospitality. In fact, if you have your Bibles, I'd love you to open up to Exodus 24. Uh, if you need a Bible, um, just raise your hand. We've got some folks that are walking down the aisles. We'll make sure to get one for you. Uh, or pull out your phone, look it up on the Bible app. You can follow along with us that way. We're going to be looking at a number of different scriptures this morning as we engage with the idea of radical hospitality. In Exodus chapter 24, we read in verse 1, uh, and, and let me give a little bit of context. Exodus uh, is the book that's written that talks about how God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt. And so now they have been rescued, redeemed from that slavery, brought out into the wilderness where God is going to take care of them, and God is going to show them hospitality. God actually wants to make them his special family. And so that's kind of where we pick up this particular part of the story in Exodus 24. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses in verse 1, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seven of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance. Drop down to verse 9. It says, Moses and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Now this, quite honestly, is pretty shocking because nobody is actually able to see God and live. And God, for some special reason, in this moment, as he is uh, kind of confirming the covenant that he's making with them, allows these folks to see him. Exactly what that means, we're not sure, but look at how it's described. It says, under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, the gemstone, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God, now listen, and they ate and drank. God is confirming the covenant that he's making with the nation of Israel. And he does that around a table. They eat together. They drink together. There is this time of hospitality that God is showing. Now, uh, not only does God eat with Israel in this kind of formative event, but then God calls on Israel to gather around him, first at the tabernacle, which is kind of like God's tent. All right, Israel doesn't really want to listen to God at the very beginning, and so they wind up having to camp in the wilderness for 40 years, and God says, hey, if you're going to go camping, build me a tent, set my tent up first, I'm going to hang out in the tent, you camp all around me, and he says, come and have these feasts. Uh, not only, uh, it starts with the tabernacle for those 40 years, and then when they finally enter into the promised land and build the temple, uh, then it happens at the temple in Jerusalem, but there's seven feasts. You've heard of some of them, the Feast of Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, there's seven different feasts where God wants Israel to come together around him and share a meal, an act of hospitality. Uh, Jesus eats with his disciples all the time. In the three years that he's hanging out with them, and he's certainly eating with them, but one of the things that Jesus does is he institutes on his last night before he goes to the cross, he institutes what we call the Lord's Supper. Uh, a meal that we still, to this day, share together with Jesus whenever we take communion. Eating together is one of the most intimate forms of hospitality because in that place, we not only share space, but we share thoughts and we share resources. And those three things are the things that protect, sustain, and give meaning to life. So let me say that again. When we eat together, we're sharing space, thoughts, and resources which are the things that protect, sustain, and bring meaning to life. Now, hospitality is not simply, though, 
the sharing of a meal. Uh, I want to give you my own personal definition of hospitality as I've been thinking through this over the last uh, couple of weeks and really prepping this past week. Uh, hospitality, I think, is making someone who is far from home experience family, someone who is outside invited inside, someone who does not belong now belong. Let me say it again. Hospitality is making someone who is far from home experience family, someone who is outside invited inside, someone who does not belong now belong. That's the power of hospitality. Now, I'd like to give you guys this morning uh, a quick and dirty theology of hospitality, all right? We're going to move through it pretty quickly this morning, but I do think that it's important to understand where hospitality comes from for us as followers of Jesus and why in the world it needs to matter to us today. So in the Old Testament, we have, as shown earlier there in Exodus 24, God as host and Israel as guest. All right. We see this even if we flip back a couple of verses to Exodus, excuse me, a couple of chapters to Exodus 19. We read verses 3 through 6. God says this to the people. He says, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. So this is when Israel's gathered around God at Mount Sinai, when God says, I'm going to make you my special treasure. This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. Verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. All right? They were slaves. They were being abused. And God comes and he rescues them and he brings them to himself. Verse 5, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, God owns it all, it's all his. He says, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. God says, look, it's all mine, but today I want to invite you into a relationship. I want to give you hospitality. I'm going to make you a special treasure. God is the host and Israel is the guest. Now, uh, you're going to see a pattern begin to emerge. Because God is the host and Israel is the guest. And when God invites Israel in, now he's going to ask Israel to be the host. In fact, Israel kind of winds up being as intended to be the host to the world. They're supposed to represent God to the rest of the world and say this is what God desires and how he wants us to live and treat one another. And Israel doesn't always do a very good job of that. But they are the only nation, the only culture that we have during kind of ancient times that it's commanded for them to give hospitality to the foreigner. All right, uh, There were a number of other cultures where hospitality was incredibly important, uh, a core value. Uh, but that hospitality was shown to uh, someone of the tribe who just wasn't from that particular area. To the poor, uh, the widow, and the orphan, you were supposed to show hospitality. And to anybody who was traveling from the, your tribe, your group, your nation... You're supposed to show them hospitality, but not foreigners. Israel was the only one that we have uh, literature that actually commands them to show hospitality, not just to the poor, the widow, and the orphan, but also to foreigners who are traveling among your land. There's all kind, I can't get into all the different ways that they're supposed to show hospitality, uh, but there's a number of them throughout the Old Testament. Now, Israel is supposed to be now host to the world. Uh, they don't always do a great job with this, and we wind up with this crazy reversal where initially God is host, Israel is guest, and now God now asks Israel to be host, but eventually now God is going to be guest. 
This happens in John chapter 1. If you want to flip over to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John chapter 1. John chapter 1, starting in verse 9, we read this. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, the Israelites, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. So, Israel is supposed to be host, and now God has come as guest. Israel was supposed to actually offer hospitality, care, to not only orphans, widows, and uh, the poor, but even to foreigners. God actually comes to Israel, puts on even Jewish flesh, and Israel... Not every single Israelite, but Israel as a whole rejects him. In fact, he's, they are the reason that he is crucified because of the religious leaders. God comes as guest. Now, as Jesus dies on the cross, again, this is going to repeat itself. Now, Jesus becomes host. Okay, Jesus as host, Christians or followers of God as guests. This is John chapter 12. We're going to stay in John. Just flip over a couple of verses. We're going to read in John chapter 12 what Jesus says, verse 32. John 12, 32, it simply says, uh, Jesus speaking, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He's talking about when he's lifted up on the cross. He says, I'm going to die, I'm going to be lifted up on a hill, on a cross, up high, where everybody can see, as an attempt to humiliate me, but in that high place is actually where I'm going to draw All people to myself. And then if we flip over just two chapters to chapter 14, we read these words in verses 1 through 3. He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. God now through Christ, is host. And he says, if you're willing to believe, he says, I'm going away, but I'm preparing a place for you, a place to invite you in, a place to offer hospitality. And and he says, if you're willing to believe, you can be in that space, that place with me. In fact, uh, what's going to happen when we all finally get to heaven? What are we going to do? I don't want to say the wrong thing. We're going to have a feast. The marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to feast again around a table with God. God as host. Followers of Jesus as guests. Now, this has to repeat itself again, right? God was host. He invites Israel as guest. Israel becomes host. Then God becomes guest. Then God becomes host again. Then Christians become guests. Then Christians become... Hosts, ooh, you guys, are, you guys are good. You are catching on. Christians become host. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 2. 
I'm going to flip over there. If you're having a hard time finding it, it's right before 2 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, says this. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Where have we heard that language before? God's special possession. Back in Exodus, right? When God invites Israel into this hospitality relationship, this special possession, this special treasure, where Israel becomes his chosen people. Now, that very same language is being applied to those who follow Jesus. You are a chosen people, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. When Jesus gets lifted up, we are able to now enter into his family. And if we flip over to 1 Peter chapter 4, just two, verse, or two chapters over, and read verse 8, we find out what our role becomes now as hosts. Verse 8, above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so at the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Offer hospitality to one another. Uh, Look, friends, I just gave you a quick and dirty theology of hospitality. We started way back here. In Exodus, all right, like early on, we're all the way in the back of the Bible and we see how this whole thing has unfolded. We give hospitality because of what God has done for us. Uh, One of the most beautiful and amazing ways that we see this working out is what happens in the early church, okay? Uh, There is a, uh, a guy by the name of Michael Craven. He wrote an article entitled, The Christian Conquest of pagan Rome. Sounds riveting, right? Uh, In it, though, he talks about one of the most beautiful ways that Christians, like, and this is before Christianity was a legal religion. This is when being a Christian simply meant that you could could be killed. Uh, There was tons and tons of persecution throughout the Roman Empire against followers of Jesus. And he writes this article to explain how, in the midst of that, okay, when it wasn't cool politically expedient, when everybody wasn't excited about you following Jesus, in fact, they were very much against you, what it looked like for Christianity to continue to spread like wildfire. Listen to what he says. He says, these early Christ followers did not organize special interest groups or political parties. They never directly opposed Caesar. They didn't picket or protest or attempt to overthrow the ruling powers. They didn't publicly denounce or condemn the pagan world. Instead, they challenged the ruling powers by simply being a faithful alternative presence, obedient to God. Now, I got to say something. This article was written in 2010, okay? Uh, Well before the last few years where our nation has become so unbelievably politically divided, right? Uh, I hear Christians, and truth be told, like on both sides of the political spectrum, We got to vote Trump out. If you're a follower of Jesus, you got to stand up against 
other side. We got to rally the troops to make sure that Trump stays in power. Look what he's done for X and Y. And, and, and we think that that's the best way to engage the kingdom of God. And yet the early Christians who lived in a regime, whether you like Trump or don't like Trump, whether you're an Obama fan or don't like Obama, or whoever the next president's going to be in two years or six years or whatever, are we simply trying to see the kingdom of God come through the way that we can rally the troops or get excited or start this political group or be strong about this particular thing? Or are we going to do what the early church did and how they won over pagan Rome, which is actually by their hospitality? Look what it says. Their most distinguishing characteristic was not their ideology or their politics, but their love for others. Again, this was not written recently. They lived as those who were once again living under the rule and reign of God, a sign and foretaste of what it will be fully when Christ returns. Now, this is why I wanted us to read this. They're, they expressed their opposition to infanticide. That is when babies were killed because they were simply unwanted by the father. They expressed their opposition to infanticide by rescuing the abandoned children of Rome and raising them as their own, an enormously self-sacrificial act at a time when resources were limited and survival was in doubt. Infanticide happened all throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, basically, if uh, you as a father uh, decided uh, you didn't want the child that was born, you could simply turn your back and walk away. And that child would be either sold into slavery, used as, in some uh, cases, uh, a, a child sacrifice, but most often the child would just simply be brought out to the town dump and left. And the child would die of exposure, either from the elements or from wild animals or things of that nature. Uh, these were often kids that were born with special needs. Uh, sometimes simply the dad just decided he didn't want the child for whatever particular reason. And so uh, this was practiced throughout the Roman Empire. And Christians in Rome and in Ephesus and a number of other places were actually known for walking through the dumps looking for kids that had been abandoned. And we have all kinds of historical literature, historians that talk about this. Kids that uh, were found too late and had already passed, and they would take the children and, and give them a proper burial. Uh, kids that uh, were so sick as a result of the exposure uh, that they weren't going to survive were cared for until they passed. And many of those children were brought back to health and adopted into families and raised as their own. Uh, the church is still doing this today. One of the most beautiful, powerful ways that the church shows hospitality is through orphan care, uh, by the way that we engage in the foster care system, uh, through adoption. Uh, there is a documentary. Uh, it's called The Dropbox. Uh, some of you might have seen it. It's a true story. It's a documentary uh, about a pastor in China um, who uh, a young lady who couldn't care for her child literally dropped the child off on the steps rang the bell, and then ran off. 
So what do you do when you have a baby that you have no idea who the parents are? The mother obviously didn't feel like she could raise the child for whatever reason. So he started to care for this child. And he realized that there were others that were starting to do this. Kids were just being left to die. And so he created uh, at their church, literally it's, called, it's a drop box, a little safe box that uh, a parent can place a child in that they can't care for it instead of just leaving it out in the elements. And uh, it's a documentary that actually shows um, how they have kind of created this orphanage, all because Jesus had been host for this pastor and experienced the radical hospitality of God in his life. And now he, in return, is showing radical hospitality to these kids that are seemingly unwanted or parents who feel like they're not able to raise them. Now, uh, we get into messages like this, right? We're talking about radical hospitality and like we we hear these radical stories and we're like, man, that is amazing. And I'm so proud to be like part of the Christian like clan, right? Like the part of the Christian fam. Like the, we, we take care of folks like that. Like we, we step into the gaps and we do that kind of like, <clears throat> that's good stuff, right? But a lot of times we feel like, what am I supposed to do? Because that feels probably a little bit out of reach for you if you're in college right now, right? Like, whoa, I don't know if I'm supposed to adopt somebody. Okay? Like. I got my econ test next week, you know. <laughs> and so sometimes we hear these stories, we're like, man, I don't know if I can do that. But what does it actually look like for, for me to engage? Well, I'd like to share with you a couple of short stories of ways that I think we can start to scale hospitality. Now, uh, hear me, though. The kind of hospitality that I just described, that the Christians did in 1st and 2nd and 3rd century Rome, when their very lives were on the line, where resources were scarce, where simply bringing another mouth to feed into your family could mean that you were going to go without, just because it's big and feels next to impossible does not mean God will not, has not, or is not in this very moment calling you to do something. However, sometimes we think that that's the only way to really do things for God. When in reality, most of the hospitality that I think he desires for us to offer actually shows up in ways like what I'm about to read. This person wrote, while dining in my hometown, a waiter approached me and asked if I was the lady who always asked for strawberry ice cream. After confirming that it was me, he stated that they just ran out of strawberry. And then he turned and offered me peanut butter fudge ice cream from the back because he had, and he's, she's quoting now, he had saved a secret stash from the dessert guy who brings in specialty flavors. After graciously accepting and devouring it, I went to thank him. That's when I found out that the ice cream was actually something he bought for himself to enjoy after work. But when he saw me, he immediately thought to offer it. That, my friends, is thunder. But that is hospitality <laughs> right there, okay? See, sometimes we think we have to go and do this amazing, huge thing. And truth be told, some of you are probably called to that. 
But you know what else we're supposed to do? That person who likes strawberry ice cream and you just ran out. God might call us to offer them the ice cream we bought uh, with our own money to eat later on, but instead of us enjoying it, to offer it to them. Let me read you another one. I was at a restaurant with my three-year-old, and I was also pregnant with my second child. Not me, personally, but (laughs) this woman. I suddenly had a wave of morning sickness that had me desperately searching for the restroom. Our waitress noticed, pointed me in the right direction, and offered to sit with my son. I accepted her offer just as I started vomiting into my hands. When I came back from the bathroom, she was at our table, deep in a Star Wars conversation with my son, while she cut up his waffle into bite-sized pieces. She was a total lifesaver, and I'll never forget her kindness in what was one of my lower public moments. That's hospitality. Uh, Today, this morning, in a few minutes, uh, we're going to be commissioning some of you. Uh, Those of you that work in the service industry, uh, engineers, designers, and those that work in the trades. And what I want you to be thinking of right now is, within those trades, what does it look like for you to have hospitality as one of your core values? Uh, Jesus does this with a guy named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, we find in Luke chapter 19, uh, really is excited to see Jesus and what he is all about. Uh, Jesus was a pretty famous dude at the time in this area, and he's walking through Galilee, and people want to see Jesus. They want to know what he's up to, what he's about. Luke chapter 19. We pick up the story. Verse 1 says, uh, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Uh, If you were a tax collector, you were wealthy. But if you were a chief tax collector, you were rolling in the dough. However, you were massively hated by all of your Jewish brothers and sisters because you were working for the Roman Empire and collecting taxes that they didn't feel like they were supposed to be uh, taken from them. And not only that, you were probably not simply collecting the amount of taxes you needed, you were collecting over and above. And if you were a chief tax collector, you oversaw a bunch of other tax collectors, so you were really rolling in the dough. The funny thing is, is Zacchaeus' name actually means innocent or righteous. And he's like the exact opposite of his namesake. Verse 3. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, I can understand, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, righteous man, come down immediately I must stay at your house today. So he came down and at once at once and welcomed him gladly. Now, uh, Jesus invites himself over, which like in our culture that sounds like, well, that like that seems a little rude, right? But in this culture, the opportunity to offer hospitality to a teacher, to a rabbi, would have been a huge honor. And so when Jesus sees Zacchaeus, 
the one who is named righteous and is the exact opposite, the stench to everybody around him. And Jesus says, hey, I'd like to come and hang out with you. Zacchaeus says that he, or we read that it says Zacchaeus received him gladly. Uh, there is a quote that's attributed to Maya Angelou. Uh, she didn't actually say it. At least she wasn't the original one to say it. But everybody says she did. Uh, it's this. I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. But people will never forget how you made them feel. People will forget what you said. They'll forget what you did. But they will never forget how you made them feel. That's a beautiful definition of hospitality. And Jesus understood this when he invites Zacchaeus, or invites himself to Zacchaeus' house. How he made Zacchaeus feel in that moment, Zacchaeus never forgot. In fact, quite honestly, it transformed Zacchaeus' life. In beautiful, amazing, powerful, sacrificial ways, Zacchaeus became a person of hospitality. I'd like to close with one more story. But before I do that, those of you that are in the trades or design or engineering or the service industry, I simply want you to be thinking, what does it look like for me to utilize the vocation God has given me, the calling God has given me, to bring places and spaces of hospitality to this world? I'd like to close with a story that actually happened just a couple of months ago, actually. A lady named Lenore shared this on Facebook. It actually went viral. You may have read about it. She says this, I'd like to share something incredibly special with you all, a day we will never forget. Today we took our little boy, Ralph, to Universal Orlando Resort for the first time. Ralph is awesomely autistic, and we are proud to be a neurodiverse family. As wonderful, loving, intelligent, and incredible as Ralph is, sometimes he struggles. Don't we all? When he struggles the hardest, he can have something known as an autistic meltdown. Some people who are not educated about autism might see it as a temper tantrum. But the fact of the matter is, it is not the act of a spoiled and naughty child. It's actually a cry for help. This is Ralph's way of saying, I don't know how to monitor and regulate my emotions right now. I need help, please. I'm scared. I'm overwhelmed. I want to feel better, and I don't know how. And here came Jen to the rescue. First, I should explain that Ralph was extremely excited to ride the Spider-Man ride at Islands of Adventure. He kept on asking us if the ride was coming up soon, and we would reassure him and say, soon, baby, soon. First, there are other rides before that one. That one is at the end, so we have to ride the other ones first, okay? He was so patient for so long, as patient as he possibly could be. The anticipation was driving him wild, but he did his very best to regulate it with the tools he had been given over the years by his teachers and therapy team at his special needs school back home. When we finally got to Spider-Man, he was literally leaping for joy. He thought, oh wow, this is it, finally, and you should have seen the smile on his face. It was incredible. Then, when it was almost our turn to board, with the vehicles right in front of us, we got the news that the ride had broken down. Everyone was very nicely asked to exit, and Ralph, understandably, lost it. Wouldn't you? My husband and I know the signs. We could see it coming like an oncoming train, and yet we couldn't dodge out of the way. There was nowhere else to go. The autistic meltdown was going to happen, and it did. 
Ralph collapsed onto the floor while crowds of people were attempting to exit the ride and the gift shop attached to it. He began sobbing, screaming, rocking, hyperventilating, and truly struggling to breathe. A woman who worked there named Jen came over. No, she rushed over. And while I frantically kept trying to get him to stand up so he wouldn't get trampled on by people, she encouraged me to leave him on the floor if that is where he needed to be. Then she did this. She got down on the floor with him. She rested next to him while he cried his heart out, and she helped him breathe again. She spoke to him so calmly, and while he screamed and sobbed, she gently kept encouraging him to let it all out. She told people to keep on walking around them so they would stop standing there and staring. And then she told him it was okay for him to be sad and feel this way. She understood. She would feel the same way too. His feelings were validated, and she told him he could lay there as long as he needed to until he felt better. Eventually, he did feel better. So they got up, and she told him he could have something from the gift shop to help him feel even better still. Anything up to $50. All he wanted was a tiny notebook and a pen to write in about the size of my hand and a tiny ID tag with Spider-Man's face on it and his name. She suggested some other toys that were even more expensive. And he looked at her and said, no thanks, I'm good. And he smiled. And he thanked her. He was exhausted and rattled as we all got after one, as we all get after one of his epic rare meltdowns. But what a relief that it was over. I hugged her for the longest time, several times if I'm being honest. My family and I, and she's writing this to Universal, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. I know Ralphie does too. Thank you for ref recognizing that Ralphie is a great kid, a sweet kid who just struggles with certain things, as we all do, neurodiverse or not. Thank you for treating him so well and with so much kindness and patience. Thank you to your supervisors and whoever trained you so well. Thank you for paying such close attention. Thank you for being there with us and for us today, for making us feel like Ralphie's well-being was your top priority because he is our top priority because we love him more than anything and anyone. But you only just met him today and yet you behaved as if you were family and we truly cannot thank you enough. Friends, that's hospitality. That's making someone who is far from home experience family. That's someone who feels outside being invited inside. That's someone who feels as if they don't belong now belonging. Friends, this is what a church is supposed to do. This is what Christ has done for us. And so no matter how big or how hard, how small or seemingly insignificant... Acts of hospitality transform the world around us because they show the world that the love of Christ that we have found and been invited into is available for anyone else. This is what the church does. This is what we have to do. At this time, I'm going to ask everyone who is in the engineering, uh, design, 
fields, the service industry, and the trades, uh, I'm going to ask if you would make your way to the front, if you're willing. We would like to commission you today. Uh, you guys are the ones that are actually on the front lines of hospitality often. Uh, as engineers, the way that you think about and design spaces. Uh, as designers, the way that you make places feel where we, uh, where we can be home and feel like we can be vulnerable and open. Uh, those of you that are in the trades, the ways that you serve and make people actually feel as though they belong. Those of you that are in the service industry that have opportunities like the waitresses, uh, the waiter and waitress that uh, I talked about earlier uh, that were able to make people feel as though they belonged again. Um, these are our opportunities. And so what I'd like to do is commission you this morning. Today, my friends, we as a church commission you to bring hospitality to the people you are called by God to serve, to create and bring people into places and environments where they feel safe, seen, and loved. Remember that God ordained you and I to join him in creating a world where humanity could flourish. By helping people feel welcome and cared for, you bring God glory as you help others experience the belonging that you yourself have found in Christ. You are doing more than simply bringing home a paycheck. You are doing kingdom work. Be bold in your love for God. Serve others in the name of Jesus and share the reason you care the way you do. Invite others to know that ultimate hospitality and belonging is found in Jesus. You are now missionaries sent into your places of work. This is your primary calling. And so I'm going to ask this morning if you would pledge to the best of your ability to deepen your approach to the trades, engineering, and design, and the service industry, and with the hospitable heart of Jesus, apply your work through the lens of Scripture. If you are willing to make that pledge, please say, I will. And church, we have the privilege of encouraging, caring for, and praying for our brothers and sisters that have these vocations. And so, I'm going to ask those of you in the congregation, if you would please pledge to pray for the trades, engineering, design, and service industry professionals that are standing here as God brings them to mind. I'd like you right now just to simply look at the folks that are up here and find one or two people that God just kind of draws your attention to. And I would like for you to pray that God would bless, strengthen, protect, and use them in, your, in their work. If you're willing to do that, would you please say, we will. What I'd love for you to do is extend a hand out to whoever those folks are right now, and I'm going to pray a prayer of commissioning over them. Father God, you found us. When we had been left for dead. You went searching the heaps for us. You found us and rescued us and you brought us home. You brought us in. You are our host. We are your guests. But God, you did not keep us as guests. You brought us in and made us family through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And now as family, we represent you. God, we want to bring radical hospitality to the places and spaces that you have called us into. And so, God, I pray for the engineers, 
that are designing various things for us as humans to use that they would think about what it means to create spaces of hospitality. I think for the designers, God, that you've given the creative work and energy, the eye, to be able to create spaces that make us feel safe and seen and known. God, I pray for those that are in the service industry in all of its various forms, that, God, they would recognize that when they're serving others, they do it in the name of Jesus because of how they have been served, and that they would recognize that it is an act of hospitality that they offer to allow people who don't belong a place to belong, people who maybe feel like they're on the outside, an opportunity to feel on the inside, to be invited in. God, I pray for those who are in the trades that are serving, building our homes, taking care of our vehicles, uh, God, doing so many different things. And I pray, God, that they would recognize that they too are offering hospitality to the world around them. And that, God, they would do it with the passion and power of Jesus. That, God, this world would know that it is in you and through you we find true hospitality. We find true home. We find true belonging. Jesus, let them go out of this place into the vocations that you have called them into with your power, your hospitality, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, I love you. I love this church. I love being a part of it and what we bring. We all have a mission. A mission to take what God has done for us and then offer it to the world around us. Next week, those of you that are in the education fields, we're going to have the privilege to commission you just before school kicks off. And we're excited to be able to do that. Friends, thank you. May you go out with the grace of Christ in his power for his name. Have a great rest of your week. We'll see you next Sunday.